Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome listeners to another episode of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm Patch, and joining me on this mission to deep space is my best friend and co-host, Aaron. Good evening. This week, we take a look at the long-awaited space drama Ad Astra, starring Brad Pitt and, well, yeah, really just him, Aaron. That's about it. (laughs) That's really it. (laughs) I know that you were really excited about this one, and I'm anxious to get started, so let's just get right into it. This is your official spoiler warning. If you have not listened to our show before, this is where we get very spoilery, so we can make full use of the movie and the discussion around it. So you've been warned. Uh, See the movie first, join the conversation later for your best podcast experience. Aaron, one word takeaways. We'll start with you, man. All right. Well, after much debate, I've settled on my one word takeaway being ineffective. This was a lot less kind of angry and, and strong than some of the other words that I had percolating around in my head. And I really hate that it's come to this for me, honestly, Patrick. I thought maybe that several days of thinking on this film and reading some of its many critical reviews, hailing it as this new sci-fi masterpiece might help me see it in a new light. But after a week and a half of walking out of the theater, I just I just don't. Uh, for me, it was a bland, emotionally vacant film that really didn't have anything profound to say or a moving effect on me. It's not that I don't find the ideas of sons becoming their fathers and space as this means of escapism and questions about the value of searching for other life all interesting, because I absolutely do. I just thought that this tonally mixed package with rare but ridiculous action sequences mixed in with stoic, undeveloped characters uh, that were hoping to resonate with me deeply on some introspective Terrence Malick-like journey, didn't work. I enjoyed the heck out of the visuals and the sound, and the central mystery actually kept me somewhat intrigued. But for being the movie that I've looked forward to the most for two years, while hoping that this was going to be another emotional experience like Interstellar, man, was I disappointed. That's that's disappointing to hear, and I, I think I I've become very empathetic, and I, I would hope that you're the same way with me. But in doing this for over three years now, there are movies that we look forward to, movies that we put a lot of emotional um, emotional weight into, and when it doesn't live up to our expectations, even when we're trying to be realistic, it's frustrating. And so I definitely feel for you. I know this is one that. You wanted to be amazing. And being in a similar place in terms of the sci-fi that we love, that cerebral make you think beyond just heavy action sequences uh, with movies like Interstellar, Ex Machina, this was a movie that was billed to be just that. And and I really am empathetic towards your disappointment because I wanted you to love this. Just like I, you want Henry Cavill to come back and become – Red Sun Superman to redeem whatever needs to be redeemed in the worlds of CG, digital, 
faces and whatnot <laughs> for me. Um, for me, the word was desolate. And I think that part of that has to do with an effective way that the movie portrays Brad Pitt's character, Roy McBride and his adventure, his journey, whatever you want to call it. But it's a really slow moving movie, even at two hours. This was difficult for me to get through. And I admit that the last thing that I ever want to do when it comes to a theater release is go late at night. I mean, historically, we've talked offline about how this is not the best time for me to go. And I had to do that because of scheduling issues. And so I was already sort of at a disadvantage going into this. I made sure to bring sunflower seeds and things that would keep me awake. And there were parts of it, Aaron, that that were pretty intriguing. I, I thought that it started out really strong and there were some really cool like, oh, it's going to be about that or, hey, that's neat. Um, ooh, you know what? I trust Brad Pitt and he's a fantastic actor. So there was a lot um, of house money being <laughs> being earned there. And then we get into probably the middle section of it and it starts kind of waning a little bit. Then there are these odd action sequences, as you mentioned, and I started kind of questioning, okay, what is it that I'm watching? And then we kind of get to the end in, as slow as it was, a rushed way. And it wasn't that the tone changed. It was just that everything seemed to wrap up really quickly. And it wrapped up very visually quick. And that was appealing. And I think that the movie itself was not greater than the sum of its parts. If you could pick out different pieces and whatnot, you would, I would say that there was a lot about it on an individual level in pieces that I really enjoyed, but holistically I'm going to have to probably watch it again, which when it comes to cerebral sci-fi, you want to give something a second watch. Um, and that kind of leads into <laughs> My first question about kind of the response to the movie, it's been compared to Interstellar meets 2001, two movies that by definition make you think. Um, in its own way, I think Interstellar was the new 2001, and I don't know that Ad Astra was billed as the new Interstellar because of the recency of the, of the two movies, but it had those two comparisons. And... On on some level, I could see that, but I wanted to ask, how are your expectations with that kind of comparison, and what did it get right? What did it get wrong for you? Well, I wouldn't say anything is right or wrong. I would say it relates to those films in ways that I may have enjoyed more or less than other people. For sure, I would say that I expected interstellar-like emotional gravitas i expected a sweeping score and an epic tale that would draw me in on a very micro level and allow me to relate to characters in ways that would generate empathy and all kinds of emotions and that that's what i wanted right that's what i enjoyed the most out of this big sci-fi type blockbuster film and that's definitely not what it was because of the 2001 side where it's more technical. 
It's, it's trying to set up this realistic world that sometimes works and oftentimes doesn't, in my opinion. I think it actually is a problem with the film because I think it conflicts in what it wants to do. It almost felt to me like James Gray's vision was entirely the 2001 Terrence Malick Tree of Life-like meditative film and a studio swept in and was like, yeah, but there's gotta be space pirates on the moon, James. You gotta have space pirates. And, you know, I've read some interviews with him and seen where he's specifically said that 90% of the movie is his. There are a couple of sequences that he would not have had in the film or he's wished were in the film that are missing. But for the most part, the studio did stay out of it. So I doubt that I can truly say like it's that big of a, you know, difference that the studio made but i do feel so it's just a strange mixture and i don't i don't know that interstellar is the right comparison because honestly patrick what i got was 2001 meets armageddon because there is so much campy dialogue in the film in the beginning and throughout the first half or so basically anytime he's talking to anybody else other than himself it's campy like, I don't know of another way to say it, but it sounds silly. There were people laughing out loud in our theater. That doesn't fit with the tone when we have voiceover from Bad Pitt talking about, I don't want to be my father. I'm not going to turn out like that. I'm going to handle this business. You know, like all this very super serious stuff. It just doesn't fit right. It's like you're you're being pulled in all these different directions. So... I liked the overarching mystery that reminds me of something like 2001 where you're trying to figure out this obelisk is and you're seeking out on this big mission to f- discover something. I liked that idea of going out into space to figure something out. I didn't like it as a metaphor without any real seeming understandable value, in my opinion, as a narrative. You know, for that reason, I don't know that the combination of all of these comparisons worked well for me. And frankly, I think it probably hurts the film because I would have preferred to go into it without hearing those things and have seen it completely 100% on its own terms, almost literally knowing nothing other than this is a space movie. Yeah, I had, I had similar thoughts and I wasn't obviously as invested as you were, but knowing that I really love interstellar and I like, like, 2001 <laughs> I would I would be in love with 2001 with the exception of maybe the last 10 minutes space babies. um which we've talked about that that kind of took my trophy room possibility down a notch but both of these movies and I know you mentioned Armageddon because there were a couple of just wacky sequences that that took place um I'm going to stick with that comparison of of Interstellar in 2001 because I feel like the movie wanted to do that. 90% of the movie wanted to do that. And so to take that analogy a little bit further, take that comparison a little bit further, I felt like it was more like those movies light, L-I-T-E, sort of like how life was alien light, but not necessarily in the best way because life hit the right notes in terms of getting you what you wanted as an audience. And there were expectations there. Interstellar, probably more so than 2001, this may be because of the time in which it came out, uh, current to us versus more classic, 
gives more of a narrative, I think, than 2001 did. And when I look at that, I have to take a step back because you mentioned Terrence Malick. And there are movies out there that you and I know that take a lot of digestion. They take multiple viewings. They take and that's part of the experience, you know, is watching it multiple times, trying to, quote, get things. But also there's the the value in trying to understand deeper levels of theology, philosophy, whatever there is. Interstellar does that, but at its very surface, there is a narrative there. There is the story of one man and his relationship with his with his family and having to do this thing and there's mystery. Ad Astra for me does this light, but it misses those things that you mentioned. It misses the connection that Roy has with his estranged wife. We 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 make assumptions based off of visuals, based off of little looks here and there, and those can be effective, but they just weren't. And I think that the creators behind the movie were condensing an interstellar type experience with humanity at its core, a human being representing that on a tighter budget, a tighter timeline. And those things just didn't get time to get fleshed out. Had we done that, had we spent more time with he and his estranged wife, had we gotten a little bit more about Clifford McBride instead of what we got, I think it would have been more effective from a, a narrative standpoint connecting to the, the human character. 100% agree. That is the number one thing that has kept me from coming away with anything to think about. Like, it, it just didn't sit with me. Like, it was fine watching it. I enjoyed watching it. You know, I didn't hate the experience. I wasn't ready for it to be over or anything, but there was just nothing for me to latch on with. Um, Thomas Bacon wrote an article for ScreenRant.com, and I want to read his piece about this exact thing, because I agree with him completely. He's, he's writing this article about why Ad Astra has such great critical response, which is in like the 86, 88 percentile of Rotten Tomatoes, and it's in like the 40 something percentile for audiences. Like general moviegoers are not liking this movie. He writes this. He says, the main problem with Ad Astra is that it rests purely upon the performance of one actor. Roy McBride doesn't really like humanity. And frankly, the movie seems to feel the same way. Secondary characters are either killed off at speed or forgotten about once they've served their purpose and given Roy his next piece of the puzzle. That means viewers will have to decide whether or not they can relate with Brad Pitt's Roy McBride. If they can't, the film will fail. That is exactly, exactly how I felt. Because in Interstellar, I can relate to Matthew McConaughey's character, right? And I can relate to him because I'm given more of him than just voiceover, and his wife is not just Liv Tyler in one single flashback sequence that really, really quickly tells me he's not really a present husband, that he's an absentee husband. Uh, and, and it's, and then we have to fill in the gaps. We have to make a lot of, you said, we have to make a lot of assumptions. We don't have to make a lot of assumptions in Interstellar. We get to meet other characters, we get to see the trauma that someone's life decisions has caused for them. And so not only can I relate to Matthew McConaughey, but I can relate to his children. I can relate to his daughter and 
his grandparents. And, you know, I, there's just, it goes far beyond that. And that is, makes me feel like it's more about saving Earth than it is what, that's the mission, right? But really in this movie, instead of it being about Matthew McConaughey and the weight of the world being on his shoulders, this one is really, that's the same plot, but it's not that. It's more about McBride and him solving his daddy issues. And it's like a pleasant extra thing that he happens to save the earth or whatever. That, that narrative just exists. It really has nothing to do with the movie. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's, it's kind of just thrown in there and it doesn't work for me. I think what you have is you have two ideas, as you mentioned, save the earth with really cool sci-fi, which by the way, that opening shot of the giant tower that the is antennas a, that he's antenna, working on sorry, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's a fantastic awesome. concept looks amazing fa- <laughs> and and the whole falling sequence and going from being like in upper space to eventually being like in the upper atmosphere and then having to pull your chute and then the debris breaking his parachute awesome and i was like oh my gosh what's gonna happen is it gonna be about this antenna because that's kind of cool Talk about setting you up for something you're not going to get. Well, what we get is it's it's, <laughs> just, it's a glorified skyscraper is what it is. And he was hanging out on, on the top level with the other blue-collar workers having his lunch. And and then we get into what, you're, what you so pointedly said, so poignantly said, his daddy issues. You have two great ideas that would work pretty well independently. I have no problem with Brad Pitt dealing with his dad going on a mission and being lost and him having to go find him or finding out, Hey, your dad is alive because we got this signal from deep space. That would have been kind of neat. And I probably wouldn't have minded so much. Some of the action sequences or really the value behind the action sequences. If they were pushing that forward outside of that, or on the other side of the the book there, I I would also have been okay with no daddy issues, but this adventure to go stop whatever was killing the earth with these you know sonic blasts of, of different types. Both ideas work independently, but together they confuse each other. They they're in conflict with each other because you have a character, as you mentioned, one character who is trying to carry both narratives. And I, I'm specifically saying both narratives because that's what it is. It's not one narrative. It's two. And if you downplay one and really amp up another, that works better than giving me two things to try to care about. It's almost like in in, in football, in college football, the saying is, if you have two quarterbacks, you don't have any. It's the same thing in a, in a similar way where if you have two narratives, you don't have any because you can't devote a full amount of creativity to one or the other. And if they don't weave together pretty well, again, going back to Interstellar, like the humanity versus save the world, it wasn't humanity versus save the world. It was humanity in order to save the world. I was having a conversation with uh, a group of friends tonight about what it means to be happy. It was kind of a out there conversation, led to some theology and some philosophy. And one of the things that came out of it, Aaron, was happiness can be directly related to the people that you're connected to. Because we can buy cars, we can buy things, we can use money to make ourselves happier. But time and time again, those that are happiest are those that are connected to other people and can celebrate others' happiness, others' 
triumphs and can even grieve with them when they are grieving or when they fail. Again, I have empathy for you because Ad Astra did not live up to your expectations. There's a small piece of my heart that goes, man, I wanted that for you. You know, I'll sleep tonight. It's not going to be that big of a deal. But we are connected. People are connected to each other. It's an inherent thing. We're not meant to live on islands. And when you have a narrative, when you have a story that centers around one man who, frankly, doesn't like anybody around him and needs a, a, an interstellar journey, excuse me, a man who needs an interstellar journey to go solve his own issues, but spends most of the time by himself, that's not satisfying because he's not being influenced by anything but his own thoughts. And I don't connect with that. I mean, yes, I journal. I'm very introspective, but I still need people to help me. I still need friends. I still need my wife. I still need my my six-year-old to help me work through the challenges that I face in life. And so if you want to get me to connect with a character who's living in isolation, Castaway does that pretty well. There are other movies that do that with someone who's living by himself or living by herself because of the fact that their drive is to get back to a human, not because they're trying to solve some issue with their dad. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that that's really a big part of it for me. I can't recall if he spends any time connecting with his wife, sending messages to her during the journey, but I don't think he does. It's pretty much a shot or two of her at the beginning, basically letting us know she exists and him telling her to her chagrin that he's going to do this thing because he needs to or whatever. And then he's gone. And I know that the idea of this is he needs to do this thing to go off and solve his problems. And I feel like the movie wants to be hopeful in the end and say, we have gone through a rigorous process of self-examination and I've come out on a, as a better man, you know, who's now going to be at home with my wife. Patrick, the odds of him ever coming back were so low. The man has murdered people, which is completely glossed over when he gets back to Earth and is just treated like normal, I guess. I, I mean, I don't know. Like, you could argue that there would at least be a major court uh, appearance that would have to go down because of the circumstances in which he killed two crew members as he hijacked a freaking spaceship. But he, every, it doesn't get, exist, right? It's just this perfect ending. Like you said, like it, it's, it's wrapped up in a flash. And I don't mind that from like a movie watching experience, but I don't connect to that because I don't feel like anything was earned in that relationship. Like I don't care that he's all of a sudden going to be a better husband to his wife because he went through this and feels better about himself now. Like what about everything else that she's gone through for years and years and you know, the fact that he even went on this journey at all, like if he needed to do this, this should have been something that a marriage would have dealt with together and maybe in different ways. I don't know. I just, I don't like how it was handled. It, it just didn't, I didn't like it at all because it didn't have that connection that we just keep talking about. Yeah. To somebody else. <laughs> connection to somebody else. Sorry. Connect, yeah. Right. Well, independently, there are things that that work, obviously not together as, as we're kind of getting a conclusion of. But one of the things that stands out 
more than anything is that sins of the father. This idea that how we are is directly or indirectly affected by our dads. I mean, it could be moms too, but in this case, it's definitely a sins of the father type thing, a biblical allusion to that. And I wanted to see from your vantage point, how has Roy's life really been impacted or even shaped by his father's actions? Well, I think that this narrative was a really cool thing to explore. And again, had Roy been one of maybe three main characters that we were following through a journey, and this was like his arc, and there were some other people with arcs as well going on, this could have been really compelling to me. I still like the idea of this. We have his dad, who is this hero. Uh, even the crew, when he meets them, the shuttle captain tells me, he says, your dad was the best of us. Imagine what he saw. Imagine. They have propped this man up. He is literally legendary in the world of the astronauts and probably in the in history book, right? For doing what he has done, going further than anybody else and setting off to find new life as an explorer. He's the Columbus of space in a way, uh, in more ways than one, probably. And, um, it, you know, it's interesting because you, I, I relate to sports for some reason, not that I personally have that, you know, connection, but you think of like an athlete whose father was a star athlete and their son coming up. There's an expectation. LeBron James Jr. can't possibly be LeBron James, right? But he's going to have to live in that shadow. And of course, he's going to be a basketball player. Like, what else was LeBron James Jr. going to be? What else was Dwayne Wade's son going to do for a living other than play basketball? We see this time and time again, and it's an example of this where that younger one coming up, you know, may be very good in their own right, but there's always going to be that shadow, those accomplishments that they don't have and they can't get to. And while living in that shadow and trying to live up to that, they're also going to have to live with whatever the mistakes their father made were. And, you know, in this case, that's not brought to light for a while. <laughs> um, and I think that the film is trying to give us this idea that whether it's known or not known, it's that biblical idea of the sins of the father. Cause it's not like he's being punished because the world is aware of what his father has done, but he's being punished in a sense because he grew up being given this message that seeking out life outside of the edge of the, on the edge of the universe and not at home was more important. And so that sin has developed in Roy, his way of approaching life, his way of handling his own marriage and his way of seeing the world. And so it's no surprise that he would take off on this journey. And so I really enjoy that. And I like the idea of like him having to confront his dad, especially with when we find out things have changed and that his dad is no longer the hero that he's going to confront. I did not enjoy how it actually played out very much at all. Like once he comes face to face and I feel like we might have had a much more compelling movie also if we had more from his father, who is Tommy Lee Jones. So I kind of hate that we just get little snippets of him on video calls here and there until the very end. Felt like every other, you know, supporting character that he was vastly underused. 
because it was a really cool concept to explore. Um, I, and then, you know, I, the other thing that unfortunately I think started to sink it for me, Patrick, is in the middle of his journey, Brad Pitt is realizing this, his character Roy is, and he says it. He, he actually says out loud, Something about like the sins of the father will always be with me, you know, and I have to, to reckon with that. And it's just so on the nose for an introspective movie. Like his narration, I feel like is telling me over and over what I should be feeling instead of just giving it to me, showing it to me and allowing me to actually figure it out for myself and feel it. There's definitely a lack of trust by the creators to the audience by saying all those things. And What's difficult, so this is me just saying I I respect any creator who creates genuinely, uh, especially when it comes to filmmaking. As someone who's trying to, to do that, I want to say first and foremost that it's a difficult thing to do because, you know, <laughs> you're doing all these things to get your audience to understand what you're trying to say. It's art. And there's a delicate balance between showing and telling and what ad astra is challenged with and i think does so in an ineffective way is it tells the things that it could show a lot more effectively and it shows less of the things that it should be telling does that make sense so the things that we need more information on more exposition whether you're showing it to us or telling it it doesn't give us that it asks us to fill in those gaps, which can be fun at times, but are better left actually said or shown. And then the times when we're meant to sit back in our recliner seats and think about what's happening on screen, we're being told, this is what's happening on screen. And I I get frustrated with that because it's not just a lack of trust. But it's also a sense of missing out on discovery, missing out on letting your audience feel something that maybe you didn't intend. The thing about great cerebral sci-fi or deep introspective art like a Terrence Malick is that it's always open to interpretation. Movies that serve as art above or even equal to and above entertainment ask the audience to do that. And sometimes it's really difficult because I just want to be entertained. I just want to be the audience where Maximus is slicing people's heads off. I don't need to understand more than that. I don't think that happens. Does he actually? No, sli- are you not entertained? That's what he does. He's sli- <laughs> I'm thinking about, is, did he, is there anywhere where he actually slices no, somebody's head Roy off? Does not, Roy does not do that. <laughs> no, I meant Maximus. Not Roy. No, no, he does. No, he's... <laughs> It double, double swords it. <laughs> oh, that's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> it's a pivotal moment in the movie. Anyway, <laughs> to digress, a movie like this is asking me to think. So don't think for me. Let me think on my own and let me come away with my own interpretation. Let me walk this journey with Roy. Don't tell me it's Sins of the Father, even if you're showing me that. I almost think, Aaron, it's a journey in futility. You talked about when you're living in the shadow of your father, um, growing up in a church, I was always, my dad was very active and, and you know this, I mean, you know, I was church together and for a long time I was known as 
my father's son. You know, oh, you're so-and-so's son. And then the tables they turned as I got older because I got more active. And then people referred to him as, oh, yeah, you're, you're Patch's dad. And he would joke with me like, oh, I guess I'm not important anymore. I guess you're a lot more famous than I am. And there's some, there's some truth to that because you want to make your own mark. You want to be your own man. I intentionally went to the rival high school of my brothers because I didn't want to be known as my brother's, you know, Chris's little brother. I wanted to make my own mark. I think a lot of people want that. I don't know that Brad Pitt's character wanted that. I think he was proud to be his father's son. And I think he got a little bit of the privilege of that. Maybe he got an easier path to NASA to get the job that he did. I know that his desires and his passions stem from a historical influence that his dad had. But I would love to have explored some conflict in there with him to say, man, I didn't want this life. I wanted something else. And you didn't even, he wouldn't even have to explain to me what he wanted, but maybe that was part of the journey that we could have gone on with him. That as he's taking this journey, he's going, no, I didn't, I really didn't want this. Did I? And maybe we flash back to him being a baseball player. I don't know. Uh, or maybe he, you know, is the manager of a really low budget baseball team somewhere. Who knows? But you've got, You've got potential for seeing a character who is struggling with the fact that he's in his father's shadow, but it doesn't, it is a nice idea, but it doesn't have the weight that I think that idea should have. It doesn't. And it's because it rushes. It's because it tells us, like I said, it, it, we go into this journey so fast. It's super speed. It's like, Hey, we met Roy McBride. This crazy bombastic action sequence happens. And then literally he's being contacted and told, your dad's out there, it's time to go. And he's like, oh, um, my dad, he's a legend. And he's telling us in his narration. And then it's like, boom, and he's making the decision. He's going, we don't even know Roy yet. So we, why do we care? Like, there's no background as to why he should feel so compelled other than being told, here's Roy's history. So fill in the gaps and assume that, of course, anybody in his position would feel that way. But we're not going to show you that. We're not going to give you anything to relate to. We're just going to tell you that that's how you should feel in this situation. And so that's part of the problem. Like, you're right. Like, it's it's a great idea long term. And I totally am with you. If I had gotten something in the middle of the film, that's where I was missing those, like, video logs back home or something. Give me a reason, man. Let me know you're wrestling with something. Let me know you don't want to be the guy you are because of other human beings and not just because of an idea or whatever. The only time we get anything like that, um, there is a moment where he's talking and I don't know if it's during one of his logs or what narration when it happens, but it's after the space baboon fight and he says the attack full of rage. I've seen that in my father and in me. I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be my dad. Okay, piece of information now. We've learned that he's seen his father be extremely violent and angry and bursts. And he's seen it in himself. And he doesn't want to be that way anymore. But why? And, and literally, that's all we get. We don't know anything about his history. We don't know what he's done. We don't know 
where that comes from, why he wants to fix it suddenly, why he never did before. Like, all that stuff is missing for me, personally. Like, I need that kind of connections in order to get in there with Roy and, and want Roy to succeed and want Roy to change. And otherwise, it's just me watching a bunch of plot that's sort of loosely being moved along. And I think that his journey is very mundane when it comes down to it, which is probably again speculating as an audience member but it's probably why those action sequences were put in place because if you take those out it's not really an interesting journey he gets told your father's alive you need to go meet him okay i'm gonna hop a plane an interstellar jet to mars and then set off to to neptune thank you and hopefully i can solve the problem but then we have these action sequences that, frankly, Aaron, just feel weird. They feel very much out of place. And it was almost as if the writers were like, you know what? It's been pretty pretty mellow for a while. Let's spice things up. Let's have a big Fast and Furious race, moon style, and just go all up. And the thing is, is that they were really entertaining. I mean, there were some really... I I actually love that sequence, but if it were part of a high energy action space movie, it would have worked, but it's sandwiched in between two slices of melancholy bread that is Brad Pitt talking about his life being a series of 82 BPM experiences. Uh, I asked, actually asked the question to myself, did they ever explain why they kept bringing up his low heart rate or did we get an answer? And I didn't get one, so I made one up. And it's because his life's pretty bland. I mean, he just, I feel like he's just going through the motions of like, here I am. And he's not like he's sad. He's just like, this is my world. He's like Eeyore of space. Kind of, of yeah. Yeah, I, I got a, a little, I mean, again, you're filling in the gaps there. For a movie that tells us so much, it doesn't tell us that. It just lets us decide for ourselves. My assumption was, you know, an 80 beats per minute heart rate, and he's never gone over that, tells me that he is incredibly calm in the face of pressure, and he is built for withstanding the shock of things that he may learn as they come about, because he never goes over this keel le- this even keel level like he is always calm he's always able to handle it he doesn't get rattled um there's a lot of stuff in this movie that i actually really do enjoy about that and the way that they have designed some of these sequences i like the fact that he's giving these audio logs because it also reminds me a lot of blade runner in the way that he's giving these reports and he's trying to stay on point right? And not get off of this 80 beats per minute thing, or they're going to not pass him and they're going to say, you're no longer fit for duty. But so I liked that about it for sure. And I think that that was part of it, but it it just, it feels weird to have that and then have all of these crazy sequences back to back, unless they're trying to show us that he just doesn't get rattled by anything over and over and over. So that, of course, that one time that he does get rattled, it has more impact. And I think that that does work to an effect. Yeah, but what it tells me is that if that's if that's the standard, if 80 beats per minute and keeping calm in the face of 
everything that's going on around him is the standard. That's not normal, Aaron. That's not something that I can relate to. And okay, it's different, and maybe I'm not supposed to relate to it. But my interpretation of that, and I'm free to interpret it any way I want to, my interpretation is that not that he gets rattled, but he has no emotional connection to those things. I mean, the guy has a wife, an estranged wife, and you don't think he gets any kind of stress from seeing her walk out the door? I mean, that's not cool. Even if I were ready to be divorced, even if I had zero connection to my wife, if I were completely married to my job, I would probably have some level of stress because of the time that I'd spent with her. I'm assuming that they had a long history being married again, filling in those gaps. But when you have a, when you have a, a normative characteristic like that, I interpret that as he's really very stoic. He's really very much about my world is this and really nothing else can change that. If there's anything that changed my mind, it was appropriately enough. The book ended monologue that he gives the log entry where his analysis or whatever you call it changes from the beginning to the end there's more spoken emotional connection to certain things than there was in the beginning but at the same time i i don't necessarily believe that because he hasn't given me a change i don't feel like he changed from the beginning to the end. And it's for those reasons that you mentioned earlier. We don't see any consequences from what he's done. He reports back in that monotone voice. I had to kill the crew. I couldn't help it or whatever he says. I don't remember the exact dialogue, but it's oh, the, I wrote it down. He okay. says the flight recorder will tell the story. History will have to decide. And that's all no, he says. No, it won't. You're going to go to jail, dude. But apparently it didn't. <laughs> yeah. Because, <laughs> and then in the end, in the end, that book, that book ended sequence, I was writing furiously because I was like, you know what? There's so much narration and I don't feel it. I was actively not feeling anything as I was watching this movie. So I was trying to capture quotes because I wanted to remember what the movie was trying to evoke for me. He says, I will rely on those closest to me. I will share their burdens as they share mine. I will live and love. That is a flipping Hallmark card message or something, man. Like, that's telling me how to live my life. That's not showing me a person that has somebody that I want to mimic or somebody that I want to use as an example of, like, change. Somebody that I'm proud to see become a better person and I am excited to see them go forth in their new life that they've, you know, developed this greater, you know, level of thinking and emotional connection with those around them. I get none of that. I just get told real quick in two sentences... I figured it out, and I'm going to go love now. Yay, at 80 beats per minute. <laughs> because <laughs> I think he's taking the, uh, the the Matthew McConaughey approach of just going, life is like this. All right, all right, all right. You know, I, he's just... I know. I'm so sorry. I, I feel like this this was happening to me, and this was coming to me as I was writing my notes, and I was like, man, this is not good. Like, I've literally like started to like this less after I left because it just frustrates me. And I still want to see it again because, like you said, 
this is a very common thing, at least not, well, not this, but not being over the moon, <laughs> pun intended, for a <laughs> sci-fi epic or cerebral sci-fi film the first time around is not uncommon. I actually didn't fall in love with Interstellar the first time. Definitely didn't fall in love with 2001 the first time. Didn't fall in love with Blade Runner 2049 the first time. So there's room for me to change some of my opinion, but I don't think there's room for it to go massively, you know, different. Right. These action sequences, though, Patrick, like, as cool as they are, like, in a vacuum, and they are cool in a vacuum, vacuum of space, uh, <laughs> you, the antennas, the space pirates, we have the baboons. But they're also ridiculous, and I find this very problematic because it was like James Gray wanted to give us a realistic set design and realism within the way that science works in this movie. We shoot off to uh, the moon first, and we learn the moon is like super commercialized, like a tourist spot, because it's really as far as we've gone out and like had any significant presence, and Applebee's is there for some reason. I really want to know the story about why Applebee's. Did, did Applebee's get pitched, like, was it, like, a bidding war? Did Outback just not put, pony up enough cash or I something? Think, I think Tyra works there. That's probably why it's, you know, she's pitching it, you know, from Friday Night <laughs> Oh, my Lights. gosh. She's going to be there. Yeah. Y'all but like Interstellar Burgers? <laughs> there we go. But it was like, you know, it, that was really neat to see that. And then we get off to Mars, and things get really dumb and ridiculous. It's just ridiculous. Like, you are trying to have me marry this idea of earthly belief. Like, this is something that we need to think about the earth and we need to save the earth. And this is the near future. And we were venturing out to find new life and we haven't found it yet. So it's still seemingly very realistic. But then we get things like sneaking through an underwater lake and literally climbing in the exhaust fight, exhaust of a launching spaceship. Are you kidding me? Like, there's nothing even remotely realistic about that. And then we kind of fall back at the end to more of that with him making a shield out of a piece of paneling from the spaceship and launching himself through the asteroid-filled rings of Neptune at the perfect trajectory to grab his spaceship and be able to grip it as he goes by at this massive speed gravity like from the movie like just enough to like hold on and be able to pull himself inside and then patrick to top it all off like i just i can't take it seriously he uses the nuclear blast of the antimatter whatever the heck it is and whatever's going on out there in this like spaceship that his dad had that's malfunctioning this antimatter thing he creates this nuclear blast and uses it to propel his ship forward with force to get it going because he can't start. He's literally can't start his car. And so he needs a bomb to go off to propel it forward. And so it is, it is literally the most asinine of ideas. It is the most generic to me, the most action movie cliche thing I could imagine. And I was like, why are you in this movie? It just doesn't fit. And I think you said it perfectly. All that stuff I just mentioned I'd be fine with it in Armageddon. Crap like that happens in Armageddon like crazy, and I love it. But Armageddon isn't trying to sell me on some introspective, realistic sci-fi experience. It feels dishonest in a lot of ways. 
when you create a movie or put a story together, you set parameters, you set a, you put up a set of rules and it's okay to break those rules, but you have to have rules to break. I think Ad Astra threw out the rules about midway through and said, we have to get him to Neptune. So let's, let's do that. It almost feels Aaron, like these extra pieces or these pieces that were thrown in were extra pieces. They were like, okay, we've got these gaps in getting him literally from one place to another. We need to put something in place. that's going to do that. And it, there were times where it felt like the writers kind of wrote themselves into a corner and they needed to backtrack a little bit. The lake sequence, the, the baboons. I honestly don't know what the point of that was at all. I really feel like it's to give us the voiceover of him saying that he has experienced rage in his father and he has experienced rage in himself. And he is recognizing that in this moment as a problem and realizing that he doesn't want to be that way. That's that's what I believe it exists for. And also to cause more conflict to quickly get rid of more supporting characters that are taking up too much time away from Roy. For sure. I will more than argue that movies shouldn't be any longer than they need to be. I'm a big fan of the 200 to 210 minute movie. I like a good hour and a half. Um, I'm... When I saw this was two hours, I was like, okay, this is cool. Especially at 10 o'clock at night when I'm like, I'm going to get home. You know, you said 200, 210 minutes. That's like literally over three hours. Sorry. I'm That's a three and a half hour movie. You really like your movies long, apparently. If they're called Interstellar, then absolutely. (laughs) Uh, No, no, I'm, I like the hour and a half to two hour time frame. Sorry. And, uh, despite the fact that hour and a half movies get, get crapped on because if it's, you know, if it's 90 minutes, then, you know, it must be bad. No, I think you can tell a tight 90-minute movie in a, in a good way. So seeing this at, at two hours, I I figured, okay, this is something to look forward to. These movies need three hours. These movies need more time to flesh out all this stuff. I would venture to guess that all the elements in this movie could have worked if the transition sequences, if the bridges, the narrative bridges – were fleshed out more. If we got, we didn't need the baboon sequence if he had had that voiceover during the pirates or during the, the crew. You know, he, he had ample opportunity after killing things and people and whatever to say that statement. He didn't need it when he did. Maybe he kills his dad because of all this stuff that's happened. And then he says, I've turned into my father. This is not what I wanted. That would have been really interesting. I don't like the fact that we're getting two stories. I don't like the fact that those two stories are trying to mash together to tell one cohesive one because it tries to tie a bow on a really ugly present <laughs> by the end. And when you have convenience overshadowing the narrative, that bothers me quite a bit. I would rather end in a messy way. I'd rather end with him getting court-martialed or executed and losing his wife and living in a desolate trailer somewhere out there where he's lost everything because at least there are consequences to the actions that he takes. Because by the end of this movie, I didn't feel like I was on a journey with him that came to resolution. I felt like I was on a journey with him where he just 
experienced something and came back because I didn't see him as being any different outside of the Hallmark card monologue at the end. Let me ask you this. What did you make of kind of the message that we get from his meeting with his dad? Because his dad ultimately ends up telling him, yes, I killed my crew members because they tried to mutiny and the last few of them, again, with the like wacky, like non-explained explanations where, oh, hey, the antimatter drive was triggered during some fighting when the last few tried to escape. And yeah, now it's sending off deadly pulses to Earth. And that's literally all that we ever know about this threat. So that's really never been the point, <laughs> even though it was sold to us in the beginning. And not in a way that we're used to a serious threat being explored. And then his dad tries to essentially kill him. He wants to pull him out with him, seemingly. I, I don't know if he does it consciously in the beginning, but he's willing to sacrifice Roy's life in order to take his own when he is out there. He doesn't want to come with Roy. Roy's trying to pull him in and save him, bring him home. So his dad kills himself, and Roy makes that miraculous choice to go on with life he considers you know not doing so what did you think about the way that that wrapped up did it work for you as far as clifford's arc and his own journey because i think that it was supposed to work for us i think we were supposed to learn a lot from clifford clifford reminded me a lot of raskolnikov from dostoevsky's crime and punishment someone who thinks of himself as extraordinary and making decisions based on not the greater good of humanity in that case, although I think you could probably apply that to him, but the greater good in general. And seeing himself as doing something that goes beyond his own life, I think that that stood out. That came from hearing Clifford and what he was saying and how he was interacting with Roy. But I felt like it fell a little bit flat because of the fact that Roy may have wanted to bring Clifford back back but i almost wanted roy to i don't know there's part of me that wanted him to just die too because wow again not because i wanted him to die but because i picked up on that futility i think another way that i would have probably been satisfied is if you had this guy who is struggling with being like his dad and really just succumbing to the fact that it's inevitable i'm going to be my father i'm going to end up Becoming a legend, but a legend for the wrong reasons. I'm going to be this guy who will get lost in space, who will die in the outer reaches without a family, without an offspring. And the legacy of my father is going to die with me. And my legacy is just going to die with me as well. While that's a really crappy ending, I feel like it's the more consistent one. And so... I liked Clifford's arc as little as we got because of the fact that it reminded me of that Raskolnikov type character, but I felt like it ended again. It felt incomplete to me. Yeah, I I liked it. I think I just don't like the lack of connection I had with Clifford because he was so shoehorned into just a couple video messages and then some really erratically performed (laughs) interaction with Roy that is pretty quick. To be honest, before he's out in space and killing himself, just unable to accept this. Because his whole thing is that he refuses to believe that there's not life out there. And we get the sense that there's probably 
a level of refusing to admit failure mixed in with that that is just on the not being you know outwardly spoken necessarily and i think we're supposed to see that as almost a toxic masculinity that's the word i've seen thrown around that you know we can't be so ingrained in our successes that we forget about the people back home and that we are willing to sacrifice them to achieve these things i don't think that's fair in this narrative because Unless the movie is saying, well, maybe what the movie is saying, it seems like at the end, is that space travel and seeking out the edges of the universe in order to find other life is meaningless, and maybe we shouldn't be doing it, and we should just stop that and focus on what's at home. Because guess what? If we do it, Patrick, somebody's got to make these decisions, and somebody's got to make these sacrifices. And I would push back on James Gray, and I find it very, very intriguing and very weird that he's seemingly making that statement because of the lost city of z in which is a whole movie about a famous explorer who's you know doing that same thing and of course we get to explore it a lot in that movie which i actually love and i'm emotionally connected to in a much bigger way we get to follow a character who does that same thing right he goes out into this jungle in amazon seeking this thing and he forgoes and sacrifices his family in the meantime and that's dealt with. And ultimately, he disappears. And that's like history. That's real. And it's like, this is like almost a piggyback of that film where Ray is now saying, we got to stop doing that. <laughs> and exploring is not worth it. And there is no God to seek out and find. Because that was part of Clifford's thing is like, it almost felt to me like there was this idea of like, wanting to go experience God, have a spiritual experience in space and seek out, you know, to be close as possible. And him saying, no, bring it all back home. Like all we have is right here on this planet. And if you don't deal with that only, then you're making wrong choices. That's a, a, that's how I took it. It's a muddy message. That's for sure. And I don't think it's fair to compare Lost City of Z's message to this one because each, each movie should be taken independently despite the, the directorial, the, the, the guy in the director's chair. I think it's okay and it can be effective to preach the idea that life is not worth exploring beyond who we are because I think that's a very valid, val, not valuable, valid perspective. It's a very ethnocentric perspective. It's an idea that existed, I think, pre World War One or pre World War Two where our president was like, we're not going to get involved in the stuff over there. That's not our problem. We're going to be very much about America. And until something affects us, we won't get involved with it. It's an idea. Maybe it's not a popular idea. But when you have a set like the moon that has an Applebee's on it, as opposed to being a place where there is legitimate space exploration, when your coolest thing on Earth is a big giant antenna that people are working on, a glorified blue collar job that people are involved with. That tells me that an idea that lives here is that Earth is the center of the universe. There's no reason to explore beyond what we know because we've got it all made here. Look, we've colonized the moon. At some point, we're going to make Mars the next great planet we're gonna put an outback steakhouse we might even put a whole foods in there if we need to you know it's 
I, I think that there's something interesting. Or sell moon cheese. Yeah. <laughs> there's something interesting about the idea that we settle a little bit ironic that we settle on these planets that are completely explorable, but we exploit them in a way that's very much earth-like, you know? And that's, that's kind of interesting to me. I wouldn't mind seeing a movie about that, or at least having that be a backdrop. And if that's part of what is happening here, I think it partly succeeds, especially when we get that conflict between, uh, between Roy and Clifford at the end. We see Clifford who refuses to go back because there is stuff out there. He believes there's stuff out there. We have to keep exploring. We have to keep exploring. It would be, it would be interesting if Roy was like, no, we don't need to. You need to come back home because there is nothing out there and because Earth is the coolest place on Earth or in the universe in this case. Um, but again, it's incomplete and it's an idea that's halfway explored and then distracted by action sequences or shield journeys through asteroids and what i mean just there are messages in this movie that get distracted by spectacle yes and it frustrates me because every critic that i've read about this movie including you have said the visuals are fantastic it's it's a great movie to watch so if i watch it again which i'm hoping to after this conversation um maybe reluctantly, I might turn the sound off and just watch it. <laughs> but that's not the way to enjoy a movie, obviously. I, I just, I want a complete narrative. I don't yeah. want pieces and parts. Yeah, the marriage. It's all about the marriage. The marriage yeah. just doesn't work for me. It's give me the same heady ideas that Gray wanted to explore here in space. I'm all for that. Give me the spectacle. I'm all for that. But give me one of those two things. Right. Um, right. Or give me the campy. I guess there's really three kind of tones going on here. Give me the campiness of Armageddon type stuff. I'm all for that too, but like, I just need them separated for right. myself to enjoy. And I think a show like Battlestar, the reimagined series touches on two of those elements pretty effectively. There's actually I might do all three. There is some campiness in some of the dialogue, but it's intended. But there are heavy ideas that are explored in the midst of really fun action sequences. I would agree. I would say that is a really good example of something that has done it as close as we can get to being really well. And I, and I think that they also have the luxury of you can do an entire episode fake focused on the action side and then you can bring it home and do a whole episode that really comes back and gets you that heady exploration in detail and in depth. And you don't have to have them bouncing back and forth constantly for every single hour. Exactly. Well, before we get into our connecting points, is there anything you wanted to touch on that we haven't yet? No, I'm sitting here feeling really awful. I, I just, I hate it. Just like you hate it for me. I hate it too. I mean, I want to love this movie and I wish that I did. And I'm definitely going to see it again. I probably won't pay to see it again, but I will <laughs> watch it again and Maybe I'll react a little better to it, but I just don't see it filling any sort of slot for me. You know, like I just would watch Interstellar over this every single time if you gave me a choice. Yeah, yeah, I probably would too. 
Well, did you have a connecting point? I mean, it sounds like tonally there might not be one, but I wanted to... I did. I did. I actually would say that there was a moment in the movie where I connected, emotionally speaking, probably the only one that I was walked into enough, and it was Roy's last message to his dad when he's on Mars and the subsequent breakdown that happens. He has been going to this spot, right? Everything has been about getting to this particular location so that he can send these messages to his father, and he tries multiple times. He sticks to this script that they give him, and he reads exactly what Spacecom has approved for him to say, and they're not getting anything back. And it's just this routine thing, and you can feel in his performance, which is, we didn't said anything about it, but Brad Pitt's performance is really great. If you're looking for somebody to be completely stoic the entire film, he does a phenomenal job of doing that. But you can feel it in him, that it's building, and he's starting to get really frustrated. And finally, when he's decided that his messages are just not going to be effective the way they're written, he brings emotion to it. And it's one of the few times I felt something, is him saying, Dad, I'd like to see you again. And he goes on to recount some memories, and he is actually speaking from his heart in what feels like the first time in the whole movie, maybe the entire movie. It feels the most genuine of the whole film for me. He says, your loving son, Roy, and he cries. And that's it, man. That's what I needed to get me connected to him for a little while. And those tears in that moment, to me, felt really earned because... Here he is, he's made this big journey, and he's reaching out to this man that left him, who he assumed was lost forever, and he's receiving nothing back in response. And I was like, man, what would that feel like to not have your dad answer you? My dad's just not answering my texts. My gosh, my dad doesn't answer my texts. You know, I I worry even if it's hours, much less like days that Roy is going through, and I have you know don't have years and years of distance between seeing my father and all this stuff. And so watching that was raw, it was real, and then it kind of transitions into him becoming so upset that he's pushed out of that calm zone for the first time, out of that 80 beats per minute level, and he's put into this like relaxation room a la Star Trek, which I'm sure you loved. Um, I, I thought of you when I was watching it, and it reminded me of Blade Runner 2049, right? When K starts to emote during the psych tests. He's taking after he realizes that he's been lied to about his heritage and and what he is and who he is and all of this stuff. And that sequence between the Mars messages and then ultimately going off on the journey to hijack the spaceship, that little portion of the film was absolutely my favorite part. And I did really connect to it during that time. I did as well. It was my connecting point. And the thing that made me connect to it was that it reminded me a lot of a scene from Contact, actually, another space movie. If you're familiar with it, the main character, uh, El- Dr. Eleanor, I don't remember her last name, but anyway, she's called Ellie. Her dad calls her Ellie. And it's not Ripley. She, it's not, it's definitely not that. <laughs> no cats in this one either, I don't think. Um, she is, uh, one of her character traits is she has a um, a ham radio early on in the movie, and she's trying to contact Pensacola or you know reach out. 
at one point that machine comes back. It's right after I'm not going to spoil anything. There's a point in the movie where she, for therapeutic reasons, goes back and activates this, this radio to try to contact, um, you know, as far away as she can. And at one point she calls back to her deceased parent that we know has passed away. And she's, and she goes from just saying, you know, CQ, CQ, come in, come in. This is so-and-so, so-and-so. And she then turns and says, dad, are you there? Are you there? It gets very personal. And this reminded me of that because here's someone who is trying to connect, not trying to contact, but trying to connect with, which is very different. This whole time we have this stoic individual who is trying to contact per this organization's rules and not because he feels like it's going to be more effective, but because he genuinely wants to connect. He sends that out and of course he's going to get emotional. And this is where the most inconsistent thing in the movie is supposed to be inconsistent. He goes from 80 beats per minute, probably to like 110. He goes from stoic to emotional and it shows vulnerability. And that's what we want from our characters, Aaron. We want vulnerability. It can come from any place. It can look completely different in other movies, but it has to be vulnerability because that's how we connect with them. We can be vulnerable with them. And you're right. I think this was the pivotal moment where he, as a character, breaks who he's been and it thrusts him into this next section of the of the story that gets him ultimately to reunite with his dad well we have these don't we we have these conversations that may have us feeling a little icky but it was a good conversation nonetheless i enjoyed it uh that officially wraps up another episode of feeling film uh coming up this week we have a full week of aaron if uh if you're if you're not already familiar as aaron hunley is going to be joining us for our donor pick episode on about time followed by some bonus content for our patrons on why we actually love rom-coms because we do we absolutely do and then just a few short days later she returns to conversate about a favorite rom-com of ours when harry met sally so we will have aaron 1.0 and aaron 2.0 on the show for a lovely conversation lovely few conversations over the next several days so you'll want to tune in for that aaron 1.0 Thank you for a great conversation, and we will talk soon. (laughs) Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter at Feelin' Film or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling filmed.